It's a Memorial Day weekend. I've got both of my readers are gone. Poor Buzz is back there doing the job of three people trying to do sound and light. And I'm pretty sure we're going to have him take up the offering. Um, so that leaves us in a difficult spot. But the, the passages that you should have had and we would have read would have been the entire chapter of Galatians 5. Uh, for those who want to go back and look at this later, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And Romans 8, 1 through 17. So if uh, some of what we say today is going to be referenced back to those, and you're going to maybe want to go back and, and take a look. As we're working through these one another's of Scripture, we started off looking at the concept of encouraging one another, and then serving one another, and then living in harmony with one another, and last week we opened up this concept of walking in freedom with one another. And in that, we're taking a larger section of Scripture overall. Uh, this passage really begins back in chapter 4, in verses 12 through 21, where Paul's argument is that we're under the new covenant and therefore we're free. But then he's got to take some time to develop that. What does that mean? And he does that in two very different ways. The first he does in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, where he makes it clear that we're free to walk from the law and from its penalty. So that's what belongs to the believer. If you're not a believer here this morning, you are still under the law. And law, as Paul uses it, sometimes has different meanings. But in the most general and in the broadest sense, always means that God's economy for mankind originally was Sin, and you will die. But he has ushered in a new economy in the gospel, which is believe, and you will live. Those two are always set against each other throughout Scripture. And so he talks about being able to walk free from the law and its penalty, that the, the law itself, if we think of it in terms of the Ten Commandments, is a, a diagnostic tool that can expose problems inwardly but has no power to deal with them on any level. And so he wants us to know that not only are we free from, from bondage to this thing, but we're free from the penalty, which is the wages of sin is death. And then, thirdly, in 13 through 6.16, he emphasizes the fact that we're free to walk from the flesh and its works. So, therefore, he's giving us two great liberties to wrestle with in this passage. And we're going to run through the first one again, just for those of you that weren't here, and to get a running start at the balance of the passage, and then we'll we'll, uh, finish out, we'll round out this, this last part in much detail. And walking in our first liberty, the first thing we find out is that Christ has made us free to walk, has made us to walk in freedom. Therefore, don't be slaves. 5-1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He really does want us to be free. And stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery, which in the Galatian church was a big issue because there were Jewish believers coming in and telling people they had to keep part of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And so our first liberty from the law and from its penalty brings with it two implications. And the implications are for us right here in the passage. First, in verse 4, if I'm really free from this, this law, 
Then verse 4 reminds me that you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. The only way a man can be right with God, pronounced righteous in his sight, is if, in fact, I'm trusting Christ and his sacrifice alone. If I'm trying to add anything to it from self or religion or anything else, I'm ultimately going to be severed from Christ. Why should Christ die if I can do it by my effort? It's foolishness. So he makes it very clear we don't want to be in that situation. And then he gives us a second implication that works along with that, which is, well, then don't let others put you under that yoke either. (laughs) I mean, that's, and I don't know what's wrong with the screen right now. Don't worry about it. You'll, You'll get by it. All right, so don't let others put that yoke on you either. If you're free from the law, don't try and... Let other people, don't let other people keep you by their standard. It's, it's amazing how people all have their own standard for us in the way that we should serve Christ. Then the third implication is, well, don't put that yoke on others either. Don't you do it. <laughs> that's, that's how we walk in freedom from the law. We walk in freedom with one another from the law. That's how we interact with one another, by not trying to justify ourselves by the law and by not letting others put that yoke on us and by not trying to put that yoke on others. So that's, that's his, first, his first concept there, that first liberty. The second liberty is, and well, there's, yeah, let me jump back here. Uh, the second liberty is from the power of sin and the flesh. That's... 5.13 gives us that first portion, but he's going to work through it all the way. Uh, look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Yes, you're free from the law and its penalty, but don't let that somehow be twisted into license. Instead, walk in this liberty in the way you should. And there's two implications from that. If we've got this power over sin in the flesh that he's giving here, walking freely, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, I must be free from, from that too. But instead, serve one another. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. For you were called to freedom. Remember? Back verse 13. You were called to freedom. The first, let me come back to that. Are we there? You know, why don't you just shut that off since that's a little distracting? We'll just work through the notes. Thanks. I don't know what went wrong with that after four hours. I'm not made for PowerPoint. I'm, I'm a technophobe. <laughs> so we walk free from the first liberty of, uh, of the law. And in the second, first implication is found in verses 13 and 14 of walking free from sin and flesh. Look at 13 and 14 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. First implication. We're not saved in order to, in order to remain in sin but we're saved so that we don't have to sin. That's the freedom He wants us to begin to live in. So we don't have to live the way we did before. And in a word, if I look at verse 14 the right way, I'm saved or freed to love. That's what He wants to restore us to. Free us to love one another. 
So don't use that freedom from the law and its penalty as license. And the second implication is in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And it's clear, isn't it? To remain in sin is at its core to fail to love one another, which is the problem. If we only look at this in legal terms, we're going to be totally messed up. The idea is that when there's sin in our lives, we've got to find out where the defect in the love is. You take care of that, you'll take care of the sin automatically. And that's his, that's his point. So in 16 through 18, we saw three principles of liberty from the power of sin in the flesh. 16, first is, but I say if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is refused its bondage over us to sin when we walk in the Spirit. We don't conquer sin by doing it negatively. How do I stop doing X? It's how do I start walking in the Spirit? Because then I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the, the paradigm he gives. And the second principle is in verse 17. And we don't want to miss this. For the desires of the flesh are set against the spirit. Flesh, spirit. And the desires of the spirit are set against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The second thing that's got to happen in our minds is that we recognize that this conflict is in the spirit versus the flesh, not the flesh versus the law. Because if we're fighting that battle, we can't win it. We're on the wrong battleground. And then the third one is in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being led by the Spirit is not bondage to the law. It's freedom from sin and flesh. Two very different things. And some people have thought that bondage to the law is freedom from sin, and it isn't. It's a very poor analogy, but it isn't. So he leads us to something entirely different. Well, that then brought us down to 19 through 21 in his analysis of sin. We need to revisit that very quickly because it's the ground for where we go today. Now, follow this. Picking up again in verse 19, here's his analysis of sin. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he's going to give you a first part to this. And you've got all this in your notes, but you'll be able to come back and get it. The first part, letter A is the pursuit of desire. That's what you have in this opening portion. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. Those are attempts to meet a desire. All three are attempts to meet some desire inwardly, or all four. And, and, and we do that several different ways. Some just by indulging the flesh, and others by... Like with idolatry and with sorcery, it's attempts to manipulate the universe or manipulate God. If I can manipulate him, I'll get what I want. If I can get the system to work. So we talked about you know, reading the secret so that you can get the system to work. Well, it's, it's just pure sorcery. I'm going to somehow make the universe function for me. That's the desire part. The second part is the result of those desires when they're frustrated or when we've indulged in them and then we find out they're very unsatisfying. And what happens then? Well, enmity happens then. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You, you want something, you can't get it, and when that when that desire 
is cut off, what's the response? Enmity. Strife. Anger. Dissension. And some, when they can't deal with that either, drunkenness. Partying. I'm going to respond to my desire being frustrated or getting what I thought I wanted and then finding out how empty it is and how I've got to go back to it over and over and it grips me. That's how sin works. That's how you and I work. That's how we function. So this becomes a great diagnostic tool. You know when, when you're walking in the flesh, when you look at these things, you say, you know what, here I'm, I'm walking in enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. What is it? Well, I've been pursuing some desire, and I've achieved that desire, and it's empty. I got the job. It means nothing. I got the wife, and it, it's nothing. Never forget sitting in my study a few years ago with a young man who was in a very bad situation, and he said, you know, if, if God would just give me an attractive, godly wife, everything would be fine. I said, hold the horses. No, it wouldn't. Won't do it. Joy's coming from the wrong place, buddy. Can't happen. God did give him a godly, attractive wife, and he left her. Because she could not satisfy him. It's impossible. It's not what we're designed for. And of course he tells us what the end of this course is. If, if I'm pursuing desire and ultimately, ultimately everyone is pursuing the same thing. Joy and peace. That's what we want. I mean, let's face it, the only reason you're angry about anything is because somebody is robbing you of your joy. If they would do this, think this, be different, if the situation was different, if something was different, I'd be happy. So that's what you want. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. We'll come back to that in a minute. But you see, you were designed to have that joy and peace, but you were not designed to have it in the abstract. You were not designed to have it without Him being. Your joy and peace. And anything less will leave you frustrated and upset and angry. Jonathan Edwards, in his wonderful essay on the will, talks about the fact that every decision you and I make, every decision we make, always comes down to this. I choose what I think will give me the, the most joy when this is all done. That doesn't mean I like all the choices. Many of us are going to go to the polls when we vote for a candidate, and we'll probably be voting for the lesser of evils. You may not be happy with your choices, but you're going to choose the one you think is going to bring you the most joy, the most peace. That's where every human being is designed that way. We came that way from the hand of God. And that's... That's where you and I are upset. That's where we're angry. That's where we're resentful. That's where we're 
full of, of morose feelings and thoughts is because somebody or something is hindering our joy or our peace. And the end of this course, he says, is very simple. It's the end of verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled. That course is damnation, period. There's no, there's no other way to put it. It's just the way it is. And then he gives in contrast to this, to this analysis of sin that we can see how it functions. I have a, a desire that I want. Ultimately, I'm hoping that whatever it is I choose is going to make me happy, bring me peace. I'm going to pursue that. And, and once I get what I think was going to bring me that and it doesn't, I'm angry and upset. Or, or if somebody prevents me from getting what I think is going to produce that, I'm going to be angry and upset. Those are the, the only two options. And he says you continue to walk that course. The end of that course is damnation. Now, that's the way you and I have all walked, especially before we came to Christ. We pursued our joys. What did I think was going to make me happy? Marrying so-and-so, getting thus and thus a job, getting a, a certain house, getting a certain car, getting a certain career, being recognized for certain things, having certain experiences. And now they're empty, and now they're gone, and now you're still not joyful. You're still not at peace. And no wonder you're ticked off. That's the problem. Why do we have a world that rages right now? He's just given it to you. He's just opened up our chests and said, this is how you function. Watch. Now, look at what he does in opposition to that. And this is where we left off last week in verses 22 through 23, which is the anatomy of love. But in contrast to the works of the flesh, which are obvious to everybody, is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Now, I mentioned last week that word fruit is in the singular, not the plural. This is not the fruits of the Spirit. This is that singular fruit of the Spirit, which is called love and has components to it. And if any of the components is missing, it isn't genuine love. It falls short of the authenticity of His love. And then I need you to see just very quickly... And I'm going to come back to this and mention it to you again, but please do not miss it. The two words that you are unconsciously inserting into the text that will change everything. What are those two words? The fruit of the Spirit. Here's the two words you're inserting. Through me is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That is not what the text says. It's not about you in this verse. It's about the Spirit. This is what the Spirit naturally produces. This is His fruit. So don't grit your teeth and try and say, Oh man, how am I going to become joyful and peaceful and patient and kind? That's not what this verse is about. This verse is about this is the Spirit of God. This is what He is like naturally. This is His nature. I follow this through and... I think it will become clear by the time we're done. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And love consists in, first, joy. The Spirit of God is inherently joyful. God is not grim. 
God is not cosmically ticked off all the time. He's not walking around with a pained look on his face. Irritated, touchy, upset, short-tempered. That's not God. The Spirit of God is joy. And if you're dealing with an irascible, intractable, ugly, hard, grim God, you do not have the God of the Bible. He's a joyful God. Even in His greatest grief over sin and the fallenness of man, He remains ineffably and eternally and immeasurably joyful. And where the Spirit of God is, there is joy. How do I know when the Spirit of God is absent? i got a bunch of miserable people. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. I'm touchy and upset and irritable and grouchy and short-tempered when I'm walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. That's the work of the flesh. I've got some joy that isn't being met. I've got some peace that isn't being met, and I'm ticked off about it. And what's great about being in the pulpit is I get to make you all miserable in the process. I get to pass that on. Sin. The Spirit of God is joyful. He's joyful. And somehow we've made God something other than He is. I was just reading through this morning. My early reading took me through from Psalm uh, 113 through Psalm... uh, That's why we read that in prayer this morning. Through Psalm 131. And I was caught by how the psalmist kept calling us back to saying in his presence is joy. Joy. God's a happy guy. And we've made him a miserable guy. He isn't. He's joyful. Spirit of God is inherently joyful. The Spirit of God is inherently peaceful. He's not constantly irritated and upset and agitated and thrashing back and forth and and worried and anxious and, and grinding. It's not the Spirit of God. He's inherently peaceful. And as we talked last week, the Spirit of God is inherently patient. See, this is His fruit. This is what this is what comes out of Him naturally. You want to know what the Spirit of God is like? Well, He's He's joyful and He's He's patient. He's peaceful. Christ said, My peace give I unto you. Not not such as the world gives, but my peace. There's a there's a divine peacefulness, placidness, serenity that belongs to the the children of God. And the Spirit is kind. Fruit of the Spirit, what He naturally produces is kindness. Uh, The missing reality in Christianity today. I went went out to lunch with Jerry Bridges after the conference, after Sunday morning here, and we were taking him back to the airport, and we took him for a bite of lunch, and we chatted briefly with the waitress. And the waitress said, oh, she goes, Sunday's church day. Get a lot of bad customers on church day. The lowest tippers, the hardest to please, 
the pickiest. The Spirit of Christ is kindness. You kind? Kind to your kids. Kind to your spouse. Kind to your neighbor. Kind to the waitress. When we walk in the flesh, see, if our joy was wrapped up in what the waitress could do, then we'll be upset if she can't do it well. She's blocked our joy. Hmm. You're going to live your whole life governed by waitresses? That's a dumb way to live. And it's exactly how we do live. Kindness. Amazing. The Spirit of God is kind. My father-in-law is just a fun person. And what he decided to do when when uh, the kids were young was tell them they could have all kinds of exotic pets. And he bought them a monkey, Wally. There's lots of Wally stories in my father's father-in-law's house. Wally, Wally uh, liked to tease the neighborhood kids by stealing their ice cream and stuff. And he especially liked to tease the neighbor's dog. And the way he would do that was when the neighbor had mowed his lawn and put all his clippings in a barrel, uh, Wally would go and sit on the edge of the barrel, and then the dog would seek Wally out. And the dog would walk back and forth, and Wally would pull clippings out and put them on the dog's back as he walked by. (laughs) So the clippings piled up. And he would empty the entire barrel so there was nothing but clippings around. Now, my father-in-law's neighbor was not happy about this. Maybe you've got a neighbor like that. How are you responding to him? Are you kind? Is his problem with the clippings cutting your joy off? Maybe you're looking for joy in the wrong place. Maybe you're looking for joy in the wrong place. Maybe that's why you can't be kind. And the Spirit of the Lord is inherently good, upright. People have said to me, you know, the Lord told me I'm... He wants me to be happy, and so I need to leave my wife and be with this other woman. That's a lie. It's a lie. The Spirit of God is upright, good. He does not lead you into sin. Never. It's an absolute lie. He's good. And He's inherently faithful. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never leaves any promise unfulfilled. He is loyal to His people. How we've taught, and I heard someone just the, the other day say this. I was shocked after so many years and, and times of, of saying things like this from the pulpit that this is... But a, a person saying to their, their little child, if you, know, if, you, if you don't do this, God won't be happy with you. What are you doing? Making a wonderful little legalist out of that kid. It's just wrong. Just wrong. He's 
faithful. And you know what the Spirit of God is? The Spirit of God is inherently gentle. And the Spirit of God is inherently self-controlled. Oh, the Spirit came on me. I couldn't control myself. Wrong. He's inherently self-controlled. He does not lead us into lack of control, but into control. Now, that is what is naturally His. It's not what's naturally yours and mine. It's what's naturally His. And that's going to be key to this. So, this is this, the Spirit of God. The works of the flesh are, are evident, but this is the fruit of the Spirit that, that He gives, that He is. And, and if we were to compare it, if we were to go back and do a comparison, a side-by-side, I've done it for you in your, um, in your notes there a little bit. If you look at the A, B, and C under the anatomy of love, the bottom three, the pursuit of desire and then the result of these desires and then the end of this course, that's in direct contrast to what he did with the anatomy of sin. We still desire peace and joy. There's no two ways about it. But when we find it in Him, the result of that, there's the pursuit of the desire again. The result of being filled and satisfied is patience and kindness and uprightness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. When we're lacking those and then seeking them by some other means than Him, No wonder we're miserable. And the end of that course, now look at chapter 6 and verse 8. It's just right over one page. You see, he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. The opposite of death. It's eternal life. So, how how do we get there? How does this then happen? How's this done? How do we put legs on all this? If, in fact, this true growth and sanctification in putting off the works of the flesh is not as much done in the negative as it is in the positive, if I walk in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, how do I begin to do that in practical terms? What does that look like? And I want to go back, and all I'm going to do is reapply the verses we've already looked at. I just want you to see them in a slightly different light, but just look at the passage, and I think it will become clear to you. But I want to do that first by giving you some idea of what verse 24 means. And that will make all this come clear. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, there it is. I've got to become desireless. Wrong. How do I crucify the flesh with its passions and desires? From the context that he's given us here, it's by refusing to seek joy and peace by virtue of fleshly pursuits and instead going to the Spirit to appropriate his fruit. I refuse to try and get the joy and peace that I desire by my own effort. 
and instead go to him and say, I need yours. That's how you crucify the flesh. You say, I won't depend on the flesh to give me what it is I desire. And every human being was created to find their joy and their peace in him. That's why we can't be filled with anything else. That's why it all leaves us empty. That's why every human effort is futile and leaves us hungering and thirsting for more. Why does the alcoholic get drunk again? Because he's empty again. Why do you go back for the next look at pornography? Because the first one couldn't bring you the joy you thought it would. Why do you have an affair? Because the joy you thought you would get isn't, wasn't in your spouse, so you were looking to the wrong person first. And then you find out it isn't in the other partner either. And you know the result. Every time we pursue that course, we're going to come back to enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions. Can't help it. So I'm created in the image of God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and then shortly after, let us make man in our own image. This God who is love and whose love is, consists in joy and peace and goodness and uprightness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This, this God who created us in His image and we want that joy and we want that peace because it left in the fall and we still crave it and we try to get it everywhere else, but we were designed to only get it from one source. And everything else will leave us in these verses. Let me just... Well, so here's the first one. Letter A. First, I've got to get it in my mind. I've got to begin to develop this paradigm in my head that recognizes that sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery are attempts to obtain joy and peace apart from the love found in the Spirit. That's the first thing I have to recognize in my own thinking. That sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery are attempts to obtain joy and peace apart from the love found in the Spirit. That's where it comes from. The second thing I need to recognize is that enmity and strife and jealousy and all the other things that are in those verses are the results of frustration over not finding the joy and peace we desire. That's where they come from. You wrestling with it now? You get in the car on the way home? You start talking to your wife about how that idiot Ferguson really irritated you during the sermon? You're looking for your joy in the wrong place. Thought you were going to get it from me? 
So, get angry at your wife. Ticked off at your kids. Kick the dog. Let me, let me go back and just expand that just a tiny bit. James 4, 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there for time's sake. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Let's ask the question. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Hmm. What's that look like? Well, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. They didn't give me the joy I wanted. They didn't give me the peace I wanted. I'd kill them. Oh, maybe not physically. But murder their... Maybe you'll murder their reputation. Maybe you'll just assassinate them in your mind. Cut them off. See, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Every fight, every quarrel comes from some goal you could not obtain. You thought you'd get joy. You thought you'd get peace. You can't get it. They've blocked your way. And so the result is quarrel. Nothing wrong with wanting joy and peace. But you've got to recognize that this is where those things come from. And thirdly, recognize that this course is the path to hell. There's no middle road. There's no no third avenue. You live your life this way, you are on your way to perdition. That's, that's powerful, isn't it? Fourth, recognize that joy and peace are to be found in the love of the Spirit alone. You want joy. You want peace. You need to know this is what He is. What He does. To recognize that it must be His that can fill me. And nothing else. Nothing else. Fifth. Recognize that long-suffering or patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are the results of obtaining full satisfaction in the joy and peace you desire by virtue of the Spirit. (laughs) That's where you get it. If you want to live in patience, maybe some of you don't want to live in patience. But if you do, you've got to recognize that the patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, and the self-control maybe that some of you are looking for. They're the results of obtaining full satisfaction in the joy and peace you desire by virtue of the Spirit. That's where it comes from. Sixth, you have to recognize that this is eternal life. This is eternal life. This is living the life of eternal life. It's verse 25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then the last one. We need to recognize that every time you find yourself drawn to or participating in the works of the flesh, that is a signal that you need to run to the Spirit to plead for His fruit to be satisfied and to have that lived out within you. 
So you're going along today, like I said, on the way home, and you're ticked off at me, or maybe you're ticked off at the guy that cut you off in traffic, or the person you're thinking about going back to work and seeing on Tuesday, or your neighbor with the monkey. And that's already starting to produce in you enmity and strife and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions. And Maybe I need a drink to calm all that down. You need to recognize that when you are drawn to sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality or tempted to try and manipulate God and the universe by idolatry or sorcery, that when you're drawn to that, it's a signal that you need to run to the Spirit and plead for His fruit. Go to Him. Ask for His fruit. Because the text says, against such there is no law. You can have as much as you want, as often as you want. No barriers. Come and fill yourself up. Now I would add to that and had planned to take you over in the process to Ephesians 5.18 where this is reiterated in slightly different words but here what I would include at the bottom is that this is the responsibility, the joyous wonderful, privileged responsibility of every believer. Don't get drunk with wine wherein is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Be Being filled with the Spirit. Keep going back to Him and asking Him to fill you over and over and over. I know I don't have peace, but I know you have peace. Can I have yours? I know I don't have joy, but I'm supposed to have my joy in you. Can I have your joy? I know that I don't have faithfulness right now, but can I have yours because you are inherently faithful. I know I don't have self-control. Can I have yours? I need to be filled up with yours. I know you are always self-controlled. You may have to do it a thousand times a day, but do it. Just go back to Him over and over and over and say, I need your fruit. This is what you produce. I don't produce it. You produce it. Can I have yours? I need to have yours. I went back and realize that with all of that I gave you there, it needed to be distilled just a little bit more. Bear with me one minute. Let me just remind everybody here, joy and peace are to be had. I've heard it, and I know I've heard it in so many weird ways over the years. Often somebody will say, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, of course He does. But as I said earlier, Not happy in the abstract. People who are happy in the abstract are called dogs. They're just happy. They just wag their tails. They don't have to have a reason to be happy. They're just happy. That's what they are. That isn't what God wants for you. Doesn't want you to, you know, oh boy, cattle ration and water. I'm happy. All right, that's not what God wants for you. It's not what this is about. God, God does want you to be happy. But He wants you to be happy the way He made you to be happy. How He designed you for joy 
and peace. And he designed you so that you could never be satisfied unless you were satisfied in him. He created you that way. And, and if this very moment you're saying, um, I'm lacking all those things, listen to me. It's him you need, not the change in your circumstance or the person. It's him. That's who you're hungering for, Christian. You, if you're not a Christian here today, the reason why you're still caught in that endless cycle of sexual immorality and all those other things and why deep down you know you're angry and resentful and hurt all the time and it's because you are longing for peace and joy that can only be had in God because you were designed that way. That's it. And if you continue to try and pursue those things apart from Him, that will lead you. You will end in hell. There is no other alternative. Joy and peace are to be had, but they're to be had only in Him. And the works of the flesh are the symptoms that we're not finding the joy and peace we are designed to have in Him. You've got to look at that whole section and say... If this is what's going on in my life, it's because somewhere I am failing to receive his peace and joy. I'm failing to understand how he loves me and to revel in that love so that that can then love others. You've got to be taking that in. And if you think God loves you at arm's length, at a distance, punitively, on living in perpetual probation, one day you're in, the next day you're out, oh, God must be angry with me, I had a flat tire. You live in that mentality, you will constantly, constantly be drawn back to the works of the flesh because you can't be at peace in Him. You can't. Third, joy and peace are something He is, not something He does. You can't look at Him to do something for you in the abstract. He must be your joy. Finding Him must be what pleases you most. That's where this is headed, always. It's to say, in my fourth one, we must not be willing to settle for anything less than perfect joy and peace in Him. We've got to be unwilling to settle for less. So, I'm struggling with some of the things in the list of 19 through 22 today. And I understand that the problem is not the external realities of people and circumstances, but that I'm seeking joy and peace. And that is only found in the love of God. And therefore, I will not content myself with anything less than finding the fullness of that joy and peace in him. You've got to make a commitment to that end. And to say, ooh, you know, my heart is still irritated, still agitated. Then you haven't gotten enough yet. Go back. I'm still anxious. Then go back. I'm still drawn to these things. Then go back. I'm, I'm, I'm still angry. Then go back. And go back and go back and go back and go back until you're full. And refuse to be satisfied with anything less. Than him. 
John Newton has a there's a wonderful little book that's compiled of his letters. And in his letters, he had a young pastoral candidate write to him and say, Mr. Newton, how much of the Bible should I read every day? How much should a Christian read the Bible every day? And Newton wrote him back the most judicious statement I've ever heard. He said, you're assuming that there is a quota. He said, it has been my habit all my years to not leave until I'm happy. I read the word daily until I'm happy. And then I know it's time. I don't leave till I'm full. I don't leave till I'm full. That's why you have words like amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's why. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, oh, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Because he knew that every day he had to be filled with joy and peace in God himself or he would be a victim of his own desires. That's where we are. This isn't about laws. This isn't about rules. This isn't about regulations. This is about saying the dynamic of the universe is such that I was created in the image of God and cannot be happy until I am filled with His image, which is Christ, which is brought by the Spirit. I am not to be trying to produce the Spirit, but partaking of the fruit of the Spirit. And when that becomes my course... I crucify the flesh because I've stopped looking to the flesh and to earthly things to give me the joy and peace I'm craving and understand that it's only found in Him. And to say, I won't stop until I get it. And if I need it again ten minutes from now, then I'll go right back there and get more. Because against such, there's no law. You can have as much as you want over and over and over and over and over. Don't live with your grimness. Don't live with your irascibility. Don't live with your irritability. Don't live with lack of gentleness and lack of peace and lack of joy and, and, and lack of all. Don't live with those. Don't, don't put up with that. Go to the throne over and over and over until you find that joy and peace in Him. It's the love of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And you can have as much as you want if you'll just not go to the other things and go to Him only. And He reserves that right to be the sole source of your joy. Sole source of your joy. Don't stop until you get it. Father, Your Word does kind of open us up and expose us. We've tried all the stuff, even as Christians. We thought, okay, we, we come to Christ and we're born again, and now life will be good. And now we'll get joy from life again. And we forgot that you meant us to have that joy from you 
You've given us all things freely to enjoy, to add to our joy, but not to be our joy. And every time that joy is thwarted or when we do get it and it's left us empty and aching again, Father, we play the fool and we go back over and over to these earthly things. If I can, if I can just get the, the job straightened out, if I can just get my health back, if I can just get my kids over this hump, if I can just get the car, the, the recognition, the whatever. And it's so empty. And we're settling for so little when you want a joy that abides and a peace that cannot be shaken, that produces in us the effects of your love. Make us know how loved we are by you. If there's any here, Father, who recognize in themselves that they are walking that course, they, they see the bondage of the sexual immorality and the sensuality and and they know that this is just producing in them those other things. May they see today that all those things are empty and can never, ever satisfy them. That they are meant, created in your image, to, to find their joy, their peace in God who is love. May today be that day when they see all the horror of this sinfulness and the hell it leads to. And recognize that the cross of Christ is the very working out of that love in the salvation of lost men as our substitute at Calvary. Father, be with your people. Lead us in this new way to walk in the Spirit, to walk in freedom with one another. Because what a church it will be when we begin to walk in this kind of freedom, when we interact with one another in joy and peace and Patience and goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Wow. We want that. And we know it's only to be had in you. And now we will set about seeking to be filled with your spirit every moment of every day. That Christ might be all in all. In his name, amen.